Welcome to the Brand the Interpreter podcast. I am your host, Mireya Perez, and this platform is dedicated to sharing the stories of language professionals, that is, the interpreters and translators from around the world. This show aims to highlight not just the profession, but mainly the people behind the amazing work. These are your stories about our profession, and this is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Hi there, welcome back. I am so glad and grateful that you decided to join me today. Today, I have a guest that really resembles a lot of the work that has occurred on my end as an interpreter in public education. I'm excited to introduce him today. Nicholas Magnolia is a National Board Certified Medical Interpreter, member of the New England Translators Association, and founder of Proglotto, a consulting firm for language access in education, healthcare, and community organizations. Nicholas graduated from the University of Massachusetts Amherst with a degree in linguistics and Spanish. He created the Translation and Interpretation Department at Holyoke Public Schools, supervises the in-house translation team, and coordinates language access services for the entire district. He was instrumental in launching a workshop series with the UMass Translation Center to train interpreters and translators in education at HPS and across the state. He continues to contribute to the professionalization of translators and interpreters in primary and secondary education. I told Nicholas he's my brother from Massachusetts because in many ways we've worked similarly to promote the visibility of language professionals in public schools. Today, Nicholas shares his story of a day in the life of a language professional in public education. I hope you enjoy this conversation and that you stop by and drop a comment, even if it's just to say hello on any of my social media platforms. So, without further ado, here's Nicholas Magnolia. Nicholas, welcome. I'm so glad you're joining us today. How are you? Maria, good to be here. I'm I'm good. Just sitting on the couch right where I've been working all day. Yeah, like all year, have you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, welcome to the show, first and foremost. And before we get started, I'd like to ask you a very important question that I like to ask all of the guests that are here on the show. And that question is, as a kid, what did you aspire to be when you grew up? Well, uh, growing up, I wanted to be an archaeologist. I uh, I wanted to be Indiana Jones. <laughs> really? I wanted, to, I wanted to go on an adventure and uh, dis- you know discover uh, foreign cultures. Of course, that led me to languages. <laughs> Did archaeology come about because of Indiana Jones, or was there something else that led you in that direction? I'm pretty sure it was the movies for sure. I was like, that's what I want to do. I'm going I'm to explore. <laughs> I love it. You're still exploring, right? Oh, absolutely. Talk to us a little bit about where you grew up. Yeah. Uh, so I grew up in uh, Western Massachusetts. Uh, I went to school in Agawam Public Schools. Uh, there wasn't a ton of language diversity, but a hop and a skip away was the b- biggest mall in our area. 
and it was in Holyoke where I work now. And uh, Holyoke has a really large Puerto Rican population. So every time we went to the mall, um, my my ears kind of perked up. Uh, I always, I, I loved hearing foreign language. Uh, and my parents actually noticed that early on and would like specifically go out of their way to bring me places where I would hear foreign languages. <laughs> really? So were you, your household was mainly English or was there a second language in the home? Yeah, no, we were all English speaking. Oh, I love that. And so your parents caught on that you had a knack for languages. Yeah, every every family friend became the tutor of whatever language they spoke at home. <laughs> oh, that is so great. So at what point during your childhood did you actually get immersed in a second language? Do you recall? Yeah, I mean, it started with tutoring. So I guess you can't really call that immersion. I got a little introduction to Greek and Italian and, and then Spanish. Um, and it was high school when I, I went abroad as an exchange student is when I really, that was my immersion experience. Where did you go? I, I went abroad with uh, AFS, um, American Field Service, uh, to Paraguay. I lived in, yeah, so I, I lived in a, a Paraguayan town called Santa Rita, uh, right near the border of Brazil. Um, and I went to school at a, at a Paraguayan school, lived with a, a family, and kind of just uh, became Paraguayan very, <laughs> over the course of a year. <laughs> what was it like out there in comparison to Massachusetts? You know, what's funny is that at first everything was so different. And then when you come back, you realize how similar certain things were. Um, I feel like more now I see all of these uh, similarities about what, what, you know, life, life was like there, but uh, it, it felt like Massachusetts, you know, rolling Hills, um, uh, not a lot of big cities. I mean, I live in what the Western part. So it was kind of, kind of country. Um, it, it felt like home eventually. <laughs> what was something, one of your favorite things out there while you were out there that you, that it's not something that you could do here, but you know, it, it only belongs to that place. Oh gosh. I mean, I've never, I've never like learned how to, I, in Paraguay, I learned how to not do anything. I know that sounds really bad, but uh, <laughs> there's this like this cultural love of just kind of um, actually there's a word for it. It's called Kai Wei. Uh, you know, it's just like, yeah, just not doing anything. I'm just chilling. Um, <laughs> so really like learning how to let go. Well, yeah, then that's definitely something us Westerners can learn from. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I love listening to the stories of others from abroad. I feel that I live vicariously through the travel stories of others. Nicholas, when did you first encounter uh, interpreting? Was it while you were out there or once you were back? Uh, I guess, it, I mean, part of the reason for choosing a Spanish speaking country to go abroad to was kind of like, um, I, I guess some, it, there was a certain level of practicality in that. I'm like, I know I can use it. I know I want to use it. Um, I want to, you know, work with languages. So coming back, uh, graduating high school, you know, the first kind of obvious job is like, oh, I could work as an interpreter. So community interpreting was my, my introduction to it kind of just right after high school. 
Did you just did you just search for training or how did you come about it interpreting? Um, I, and I asked because I've shared this on the platform before that I didn't even realize growing up in a bilingual home that interpreting was a thing as a profession. Right. Um, and it wasn't until I bumped into a flyer at a courthouse one time that I was dragged into court by my mother to interpret for her that I realized I could actually get paid for this. So <laughs> <laughs> that's why I ask at what point do you remember that you realize, hey, like I could actually do this as a profession? Yeah. Um, it, I mean, I think everybody starts out with the typical um, like UN, like, oh, you could be a UN interpreter. And then slowly you start to realize that you could interpret in many other places, not just the United Nations. Um, and and I guess I could say too, I, I had an experience in the courthouse. That was my first experience um, seeing somebody whisper interpret, uh, which was really cool. I was like, oh my God, is he is he really saying everything that they're saying in her ear right now? Like everything? Like that that was mind-blowing. <laughs> I love that. That's so great. And from that moment, you thought, okay, this is actually something that I'd be interested in. Oh yeah. You began as a medical interpreter, is that correct? Correct. How did that come about? Did you, uh, so you did community interpreting, you did your schooling, your training, and you started working, uh, did you start working in the medical field or, or what was that like? Yeah, the training that I attended um, after graduating high school was a community and medical interpreting, and it was hosted by an agency. And I, I don't know if that's the norm. I feel like it, it might be uh, in a lot of other places, too, where the, the agencies kind of host these trainings. And then, you know, uh, depending on how well you did during the training, they might want to actually contract you. Uh, and so that was my introduction, um, just working for the same agency that I took the training with. So walk us, walk us through, then you begin as a medical interpreter and you're out in the medical field. And at some point you land in the world of K through 12 education. How did that come about? Uh, right. So starting out in medical, um, the biggest thing for me was learning how to navigate um, such areas as like rehab um, for addiction, uh, which was a really common thing to send me to. Uh, since at that point, I wasn't certified yet as a medical interpreter, I was doing a lot of like group therapy, and social, uh, like behavioral health uh, was really common. Um, and I even got my first introduction to an IEP meeting in the in, in the psychiatric ward in the fifth floor of a behavioral hospital. Really? Yeah, it was it was intense, uh, as you can imagine. Um, you know, and I, I feel like I did a good job, <laughs> Yeah. you yeah. know, but you always come out of it thinking like, oh my gosh, what, what, what exactly were they talking about? And just kind of like going in and finding IEP glossaries and realizing like, oh, there was a much better way to say that. <laughs> right, right. And so you, you eventually become involved directly with um, interpreting for a school district what was your initial reaction when you first started? Did you think that uh, everything was just going to, you know, be in its right place upon entering? Or did you have an idea that there was going to be some work that needed to be done? 
Yeah. So coming, being a staff interpreter uh, in a hospital, your roles were, my role was really clear. Um, I kept my, my like three phones on at all times, just running around the hospital, answering different calls. Uh, But to switch over to education was, I had no idea what to expect at all. Um, okay, so coming into education, it became pretty clear pretty quickly that no one really knew what to do with an interpreter. Right. Like they like they knew they needed one, but they didn't. I had to teach them how to how to manage me. <laughs> <laughs> I you know, that. I can totally relate. So I love that. <laughs> Keep it it's, up, it's, right? Because you know, you're. I had to eventually start moderating meetings, which I had had practice with as a freelancer, and they would kind of give it all up to me and say, oh, okay, you know, Nick's practically running the meeting, but then I'd have to take a step back and be like, no, actually I need you to facilitate in such a way that helps me do my job. Um, (laughs) I can't facilitate for you. I'm sorry. Right. Right. So relatable. So very relatable. Were you the only interpreter upon entering or were there already other staffed interpreters there? I came in as the second uh, interpreter. There has there was one interpreter already. She had been doing the work for years. Um, I think a good decade before she even got trained. Um, and then then they provided her training, and then she, you know she's still doing it. Uh, we still work as a team. But yeah, she she went through some tough years, um, not having the training or knowledge necessary to to really like tell people how to work with you as an interpreter. Um, so she struggled for a while before we kind of established like, no, this is what you experienced was normal. Uh, and in fact, right. that really that was frustrating because that's not how you work with interpreters. So you're you're justified in saying that like this was a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. So I I, I love how you said that in the medical field there were clear roles as to not just, you know, what everyone else's role was with the interpreter, your own and, you know, your, your own role, obviously. And then, you know, even the role of the person that is uh, to assign you wherever you're supposed to go. Right. So, you know, everyone kind of has these clear roles with regards to working with an interpreter. And so you enter into the field of education and quickly realize, right, that it's, it's a completely different world because you're in, you're in complete silo at that point. Like you said that no one knew how to work with an interpreter, what to do with the interpreter, by the way, completely relatable again. So I imagine that you possibly encountered a lot of disparities, such as a few of of like the ones that you, that you just mentioned. Were there any other things that really stood out to you that at some point, at some point you said, we've got to do something about this. We've got to create some structure around the, the role of the interpreter. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's basically the first year that, that that's what it was coming in and being like, there needs to be more of this. There needs to be more of that. I can see how we can improve this. Um, luckily I was in just, just the right position where I wasn't overmanaged uh, and I was able to actually set, down and, and um, get to work and doing these things. Just like I said that there was a full-time interpreter before, uh, there was also a full-time translator. And it's funny that you used the term silo because that's exactly how it felt. We were all kind of working in isolation. Um, and by 
by bringing a little little uh, project management flair to the translation side and by getting us up to speed on all using the same calendar. Uh, it was kind of amazing what you can get done <laughs> just with a team of three people. Um, all of a sudden we were all doing the same work and it was quantifiable. <laughs> Exactly. Wow, Nicholas, you're like my brother out in Massachusetts. You're like so speaking my language right now. This is so amazing. Yes, a team of three. And once you became a team, like a strong team, I think the push forward goes a little faster. That momentum at, you know, at least is there. Mm -hmm. What would you say people often get wrong about interpreting in education? Because I can name a bunch of things, but what would you say like people often get wrong about it? Even translation, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Um, I mean, besides besides the obvious, like everything was a translator. So then you had like <laughs> the, the people's use of language didn't even allow them to understand the things that they needed. Right. So they would say like, uh, I, I need I need this translated real quick. And then they're like, OK, where's the document? They're like, no, I meant the meeting. Right. So like getting us used to looking at the services as different one being oral one being written like it, it seems so basic but it's revolutionary when you can like really use language to differentiate and just say like no like let's talk about these things separately yeah yeah absolutely are you guys still the same group that started or have you expanded uh yeah we've expanded uh we've got two uh new people um in the beginning, it was kind of like a, you do translation, you do interpretation. Nobody did both. I was the first one to come in to kind of be doing both. And I, I recognize that's not even the norm. And if I had to pick one, I would be an interpreter. Um, but it's important in our district, especially since we have so much need for Spanish to really have somebody who can do both. Uh, and that's what we sought out to sought out to find. And now our team is, we're, we're golden. Yeah, I know. That's so great. I love it. And I, and I, I say yes, not because I've been there, but because recently I posted something on social media that you, it was a, it was a series of questions to ask your school district administrators to see if you had a solid um, language access plan within your school district. And you checked off all of those questions, which is amazing because Typically, it's maybe one, maybe two, but not all coming from a school district. And I'm going to mention the questions here just so that our listeners know what exactly it is that I was asking. Um, and I asked something around the lines in the post of, you know, if all stakeholders within your organization, meaning your school district, can uh, synchronously respond to the following questions, then let's chat, right? And I said synchronously purposely because only one administrator from a department or a school isn't going to cut it, right? It needs to be all administrators because language access is for everyone to get involved. Uh, and so the questions were, what is the process for providing language assistance to LEP parents or guardians? How does the LEA, and that's local education agency, inform LEP parents about the availability of free language assistance services, including qualified interpreters and translators? What is the process for acquiring qualified and trained interpreters and translators? What is the process for determining that the LEA staff is competent and appropriate to serve as interpreters or translators? And then lastly, 
how does the LEA ensure that interpreters and translators have knowledge of all specialized educational terms and concepts? And this uh, was derived from the tools and resources for ensuring meaningful communication with limited English proficient parents from the Department of Education. Mm-hmm. So tell us how that work even got started. For those listeners that are out there, again, in silos, in the same position that you were at some point when you entered that school district and they feel like, well, there's no one really here that knows the job. What can they do? I love the fact that you mentioned with a little bit of project management flair, because that's something that you bring in addition to uh, the interpreting skill sets or the translation skill sets. So it's, it's combining uh, and I and I talk about that a lot here on this platform, combining your strengths, right? Combining your skill sets to be able to put something together. So what would you say would be the first a team of one or a team of two should do to begin that process of creating something that's solid and in terms of a language access plan or just a team? Yeah, great. Uh, yeah, great question. Um, I would say similar to what I said before, I mean, okay, translation is easier to, uh, I think, create a record for a lot of the time, just because of the nature of how it is. I mean, you're discussing documents. So whatever information isn't in the request could possibly be in the document itself. Uh, Whereas interpreting, it's like a dispatch system. It's like 911 all the time. um, And you just have to make sure that there's always somebody there. Uh, And so the trick was, right, to put all of the requests for translation through one form and have one team kind of manage it all together. You know, we, it's simple little, like, you know, you create some drop downs and you assign this project to this person and this person is going to be translator, but same person can't be proofreader and just kind of keep a, a workflow going of a constant live list um, of all of the active projects, um, keeping so you're saying create a system, create a, a, a system of request if you don't yes. already have one. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. And uh, for interpreting, connecting connecting all of the interpreters to a calendar rather than depending on a spreadsheet for dates and times has been really beneficial for us. So all the interpreters um, work off of one calendar. Yep, all of the staff interpreters. So we have mm-hmm. this kind of um, tiered, not even tiered, we, we, we all have our assigned schools. So when the request comes in, we all receive the invitation, uh, but only one of us will say yes or no. And then we all know what our secondary school is. So if that person from that school says no, then we know that we need to pick it up. Uh, and the last person, the last staff interpreter in the line is the one who connects them to a, an on-demand contracted interpreter in the case that they're not available. So there's always kind of a passing off rather than a one like overhead management of the whole thing. You just mentioned on-demand contracted interpreter. Break that mm-hmm. down for someone that doesn't know what that is. Right. So uh, for whatever uh, requests that we can't handle ourselves in-house because of time constraints, uh, availability, then we would, we, we also work with agencies, um, multiple language service providers who can provide interpretation over the phone, uh, through zoom, uh, by video call. Yeah. Video, video call, phone call. Um, and, and their interpreters that are available on demand at, at all times, um, that way there's never the lack of a 
qualified interpreter isn't the reason why communication doesn't happen. Yeah. Now, was that something that was in place prior to you uh, coming in, or was this something that resulted once the team started getting together and putting some systems in place? Yeah, I'm not going to take all the credit for that. Uh, What's interesting is that we were already working with the agency who provided uh, video conference interpreting and and scheduled um, telephonic interpreting, but we only ever used them for the occasional documents. So I kind of just, yeah, I just said like, oh, hey, let's use this agency for these other things that they offer. (laughs) What, what are you doing in terms of training? Um, is, there, is there training being provided to bilingual staff or is that not something that is offered in your district? Yeah, training, I think, is the most um, powerful transformation that we've actually undergone in the district. Uh, we've been really lucky. When we sought out to establish our principles and procedures, a training, since, since we adopted a tiered model uh, in our language plan, I'm probably going ahead myself here but we established a tiered model and so i'm a, the in-house team occupies a certain tier and then the other tier are the bilingual staff who would otherwise be qualified to translate or interpret um, you know if they had some training hours so we partnered with the umass uh, University of Massachusetts Translation Center to help develop a course customized for Holyoke Public Schools um, that it consists of 24 hours of training time. And to date, we've trained approximately 100 staff, uh, which is huge for us because we have 500 staff. <laughs> wow, that is huge. So yeah. 24 hours, how do you break that down for um, school personnel? Because a lot of the support staff, bilingual support staff, obviously have other assigned duties. So how does that work in your school district where it's the, the least disruptive for you know their actual jobs? Yeah, uh, so the idea was to target um, participants to take the training as the people who were already doing the work, right? We weren't setting out to establish new duties. We were just trying to get the people who were already doing this work to do it in a more informed capacity. Um, so we we looked at uh, office managers, uh, paraeducators, um, related service providers, some educators, not many, uh, and even principals. Wow. How amazing is that? That's right? so great that even administration is uh, being a part of that. And how did you break it down? The hours, I mean? Was it uh, two oh, hours okay. like yeah, every Friday or how did you break that down? Yeah, it was a workshop series. So we did three hours, like, like you said, every, uh, three hours every Friday for seven, uh, seven weeks. And uh, in each workshop was dedicated to one thing or the other. So, you know, three workshops were dedicated to interpreting and how uh, how to deliver interpreting um, consecutive versus in, uh, simultaneous, the modes, technology. Um, and then one was dedicated to written translation. Uh, one workshop was about um, the Spanish variety in our city which was awesome. Uh, It was uh, hosted by a linguist from UMass who kind of like really explained bilingualism to us, uh, to the, to participants in a way that I think many haven't heard it before. Um, Me coming from linguistics, of course, I was loving it the whole time. And I'm like, everybody (laughs) listen up, you have to hear this. Um, Because it, 
is so powerful. Uh, they people got to learn about the, their language variety in a way that they don't often get to learn about it. Mm, I love that. I love that so much. Like you said, you know, training, it's um, such a powerful transformation. I love your choice of words here because it's so true, right? It's just uh, once once people have that training um, under their belt, it just, it, it does something different. Like their eyes just mm-hmm. shine in a completely different way because they've been exposed to something that they never thought of in the past, right? Uh, uh, so anyway, I, I love that so much. So here's my other question for you with regards to, you know, creating system, establishing a a calendar platform for everyone, which by the way, I meant to ask, what platform are you guys using for your calendar? Yeah, we're in all Google districts. So my system is uh, a whole amalgamation of Google suite tools. Mm. Uh, I didn't want to use anything that wasn't going to be accessible by all staff. Right. Uh, with the exception of translation memory. So we're using Trados, but that's just an in-house thing. We don't really, we don't have other staff using that. No, that's great. I love that because, uh, yeah, we do too. So it just, sometimes I go off and talking about this stuff and then realize that, you know, um, that that staff or that interpreter is not using the Google Suite platform. So I'm like, whoops, okay, let's try something else right. you know, in terms of what you're using. So I was just curious. Um Nicholas, has there been any um, work-related moment in your life that you felt or have felt that it's inspired you or has left a lasting impression? Yes. So in in the district, um, being able to really bring language access was has been really rewarding in the sense that the majority of the community speaks Spanish and by connecting more Spanish interpreters and Spanish translations and bringing language access forward, it's, it's incredibly rewarding. And, um, like you can't replace that, but oddly enough, I've discovered this like other kind of, um, like super satisfaction that I just can't quit. Um, I, I have families who speak languages that it takes us a little bit to, to find translators for interpreters for, um, uh, very rare languages. And in a way I feel, um, how do we, I guess I feel protective, you know, like I feel like these lines of communication are so fragile and I just feel like I will do whatever it takes to make sure that these, these conversations happen. And when they happen, it's like, oh my gosh. I mean, it's, it's a high, you know, it's right. like, oh my God, that was the best conversation. We just got so much great info. Like, <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't even know how to I don't know how to say that any other way. It's just, uh, it's super rewarding to bring language access to like the steepest barriers. Yeah. I, my phrase is I geek out when something (laughs) like that happens (laughs) because I'm the only one that's super excited about, you know, the oddest little things like that. And then I'm like, sorry, I'm having my little geek out moment. Give me just a second. I'll be back with, you know, like my serious things, but I, I, yeah, those synchronicities, things like that. I, I, I always appreciate and love because it just, it is like you said, very rewarding, you know, to be able to uh, put two and two together. Um, And ultimately, you know, just providing that service that is so very much needed within the school, the school district, just public schools in general, what would you like to see different in a K through 12 um, public education system? Like if you could throw out one thing across the board for all K through 12 school districts to follow, what would you say that would be? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, lately, right? Uh, lately, my thing has been um, there's this difference between implementation and integration, which mm. I've been really focusing on and thinking about um, just in the way that I'm like presenting how how we're doing the work. Uh, and, and I take inspiration from you, Maria. Um, I read the the guide, the how to build your TNI unit that you sent out, which was like short, simple and effective. I love it. Uh, and, you. and I've, I've totally copied you. So I hope you don't mind, but I go around now saying, how are you using the data to create a narrative? <laughs> right. Right. Oh my God. Um, I and, told you, you're my brother from Massachusetts. I love it. <laughs> and people love it too. They love hearing that because it makes sense. It makes sense to them. You know, they, uh, especially in education, right. Uh, the narrative is important. Um, yes. so what would I want to bring to the district integration, um, making language access uh, a, a factor in decision-making district-wide is, I just feel like it's the next step. We've, you know, we've found the incompliance, we've implemented the interventions, um, we've established a model for providing these, these universalized supports that should be universal. Uh, I guess on a systemic level, I want to see translation and interpretation more available, regardless of whether or not you're labeled as an ELL or a SPED student. Mm. Um, I want to see translation really having a seat at the table when it comes to how, how to bring language access to our communities. Uh, and, and I want to see in-house teams, like in-house, yeah. like schools being their own agency Absolutely. Uh, is what I really want to see. Oh my gosh, yes, that would be so incredible. It's it's amazing to hear sometimes. Um, you know, we get so caught up, like I do at least, uh, out here in California, that sometimes when, you know, when I'm throwing things out or I'm talking to other people from other states and I realize that an in-house person isn't even a thing there, that it's, you know, they're at the mm-hmm. point of just it's the bilingual staff that's doing the work. And so um, you know, just there's there's a lot of misinformation, obviously, because they don't understand the role of the difference of, of both roles, right? Their um, bilingual role versus the role of the interpreter and what that looks like when you're assisting and just all kinds of stuff that it's, it's, there's a complete difference just in understanding in the paradigm, you know, when you're thinking about the roles and you're talking about it, I've come to realize like, yikes, like it's, this isn't a thing everywhere. So um, it just brings me back to feeling fortunate that our school district has created um, a role and has, has opened the door to these conversations. At the very least, there's a lot of work to be done, of course, you know, because mainly it's um, the translators and interpreters themselves, you know, ourselves putting the work together to present um, for the administrators. And so like you, I'd love it to be turned around where, you know, it's the administrators putting this in the forefront and saying, you know, language access is part of this conversation. Um, So I'm totally with you on that for sure. What supports or resources do you feel are important and available out there for someone that is out perhaps, I don't know, it could be another school district in another state or even within, you know, your own state that you would say, you know what, start here, create create this uh, first or get this information, you know, that's a great resource for someone. 
Yeah, right. So I've and I've done this. I've looked kind of looked back at like what it what it took to make the system. Um, and then if you had to reduce it all down, right? If you had right. to make a one page how to guide, uh, how would you do it? And um, I, I guess for me, you know, I guess I'm still struggling to find out like what it is. What what are those essential blocks that you that that you need, right? Because it, every district has really distinct needs. And uh, sometimes it's not so cut and dry. And, uh, and sometimes you have these really rare languages, um, say three rare languages in a district where those are the only three LEP families and you have no bilingual support in their language, right? Because mm-hmm. I think we get, it, it gets easy to talk about just Spanish, right? Because there's, I feel like in the United States, there's always a solution for Spanish. It's the second most spoken language. Uh, But how are we supposed to handle a Cambodian or a Key Rwanda request? Um, Maybe Cambodian isn't so hard, but Key Rwanda has been challenging. I guess, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to say is like, there needs to be a, a general metric, right? Of like, how many languages do we have? How many of those are rare? And how often do we estimate we will need to request written and oral services throughout the year? It's like a, a one big projection. Mm-hmm. Um, there's got to be some kind of great, you know, little unit to come up with there, but I haven't come up with it yet. Yeah, I think that, you know, just it, it, you you briefly mentioned it which is basically uh, it it really is about identifying the need first right like let's let's create the structure based on the needs of the school district because it you know we talk about language access but just like you said it looks differently everywhere so just being able to sit down and identify what that need in your school district currently is is it training you know if it's a bunch of bilingual staff performing the duties and you know going nuts because of everything they're having to do and they're not doing the job right is is there, you know, an OCR complaint? Is there, you know, so just identifying what the need is and then, you know, starting from from there at least. I would add also, um, Nicholas, that people reach out, um, you know, and connect to people like you, school districts like you, you know, your team, I should say, because it does, it, it does require a team. Absolutely. Right. And so be able to reach out to school districts that have initiated something so that at least you're making that connection and being able to see maybe, maybe, you know, the school district out in California doesn't really resemble, you know, our school district, maybe the one out in Massachusetts with Nicholas, you know, kind of resembles more of the needs that we've got. And so maybe being able to connect with people, it's like, basically, you're networking, you know, and, and we're such few school districts that have been able to get the ball going that, you know, it's, it's great to just be able to connect with those few just to bounce off ideas at the very least, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, having a having an or, uh, an organization like um, like ITE, for example, has been super. Uh, I mean, it's been really great to be connected to other people who are doing the similar work, uh, and to be able to bounce off ideas like that. Um, I I really hope that eventually we get to the place where there's a certification for educational translators and interpreters, and I feel like at that point. Um, it'll be kind of like impossible to ignore us. 
Oh my gosh. I actually just read a piece of legislation from, um, I think it's actually Washington state that's like pushing through something. I better not even, I, I probably butcher this and, uh, you know, if I name it, cause I don't have it in front of me, but I did just read it a couple days ago and it was shared out, um, that they're pushing through some language access policy, um, for schools, for interpreting nice. and translation. So if they can be the model for the rest of the states, my goodness, that was I was like mind blown. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna have to do a little bit more homework with this one. But just reading it, like I said, I was having a I was geeking out. I was having my geek <laughs> moment there. <laughs> that sounds really exciting. I, I don't even know what you're referring to, but I look forward to seeing it. Whatever. Yeah, you know what? I'll forward it after this. Um, Nicholas, what would you like to recommend to anyone that is starting, um, you know, in their journey in the schools like us, we, we came from the medical field perhaps, and we just landed our new role in a K through 12 school district or, you know, just a school district. Um, and we're super excited at our new roles. And then we come to realize like, what is going on in here? What is not going on? What would you say would be the first thing uh, aside from gather your thoughts and don't regret the decision? <laughs> what would you recommend to this newbie starting um, or maybe not even a newbie that maybe somebody that's been even thinking about wanting to create something because there, there needs to be a little bit more structure around the role and the service. What would you say to them? Yeah. Uh, I would say keep track of everything you do. Keep a log. Uh, write down the time that you started and the time that you ended and get the name of names, names and numbers uh, end up being the, the key things. Uh, don't let anybody go on thinking that you haven't done this incredibly challenging amount of work, um, interpreting, translating, and probably managing other duties. Um, I, I, I would also say, you know, we, we throw around the expression of wearing a lot of hats, but we don't like talk about how hard it is to actually take off a hat and put on another hat, which sounds, mm -hmm. it sounds like a really easy thing, except when you have to do it. And, right. uh, and it's not, it's awkward to say, I'm stepping out of my role as counselor right now and I'm going to interpret. And then you start interpreting it. Like real life is so messy. Um, so I'd say really learn about what it takes to be a translator and an interpreter and, and what um, the complexities are and focus on how those duties contrast with uh, other duties that you may have, because there will be conflicting duties. Yeah. What are, um, what new or future projects are you currently working on that you'd like to share or could share? Um, this could be either, you know, in, in the profession or, you know, your own personal uh, aspect that you're something else you're creating or doing that you'd like to share. Um, I've created a, a handbook uh, for all of the people in our district who have been trained. Uh, I think that this is something that, uh, teams and other districts should probably consider doing, um, putting your standards of practice and your code of ethics into a guidebook and actually creating a kind of uh, network uh, among all of the school uh, or educational translators and interpreters in a district and a school uh, and, and kind of keeping everything in one place. Mm. Uh, also using the guidebook as a way to create um, 
a universal terminology within our own district, knowing how we call the similar programs, uh, knowing what words that we use specifically in our district versus the more general uh, term. Um, so yeah, I mean, having a, I've, I've, I've been working on, I actually, I've created it already. We use it in the district. Um, what I've been doing is sharing it with other districts in Massachusetts um, through this training with uh, the UMass Translation Center. So that's been kind of like my little mini project, uh, kind of just sharing the love with that one, uh, teaching other people how to do like your your do do it yourself um, handbook, uh, and giving them like a little head start of like, yeah, this is what it should have, and this is the fill in the blank spots, and uh, this is how you make a glossary. Um, <laughs> that's so the, like, that's my only big project really. No. And it's, I think it's huge. You know, it, 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 you may feel like it's not a big deal, but I think consistency is key. Like consistency is just huge. And it's something that we lack, you know, every translator can translate in, in their own individual way, um, or even the interpreter and use all sorts of different terminology. And we are we really doing our parents any service if we're calling the one document by different names based on, you know, uh, our individual interpretation or translation of the terms. So um, I think that's huge. And it's, it's actually a very great idea to be able to provide that. Nicholas, Thank I'm you. curious, how do you do communication? with, you know, now that you've experienced everything that you've experienced in K through 12 education, how do you do communication with your administrators, um, you know, with teachers? Like, is there something that you're consistently sending out every school year at the beginning or at the end to remind everyone? And this came, this came up right now that you're talking about consistency. Like, are you using some sort of communication technique as well to communicate all of these things that you've put together? Yeah, uh, I've kind of done, it's, it started out with a little, they call, you know, at first they were calling them trainings, right? We're going to train the educators. We're going to train the school leaders. We're going to train central office staff. And I just kind of started um, calling it more just like facilitated activities Let's like learn about where where we're at with these things and learn how to talk about it. Um, at this point, it's more of a it, it's like a consulting kind of thing, you know. Where I'm I'm the I'm the translation department, uh, regularly working with these other departments and and asking them what their perceptions on these things are and how we can improve uh, the process. I, I guess by targeting different groups, uh, we've I through a combination of facilitated activities and surveys really was what it comes down to. Uh, we were able to collect people's opinions on different things and really learn about what to focus on. For example, uh, through a survey uh, to all of our district staff, I learned that there was this really large perception, uh, really, common uh, uh, really common misconception that all interpreters um, have to know all of the um, idioms in their source and target languages. Like I need to know every idiom of English and Spanish because I work in both languages. And that was actually a really, really wow. common misconception in the district. So I actually spent some time <laughs> yeah. um, at a, in a facilitated activity, taking staff through um, all of the many 
uh, English acronyms, like the, the 20,000 that we have, or I'm not acronyms, I'm sorry, English idioms uh, that we have. And I think it, it woke people up to how um, that's not actually the case. And that, in fact, by avoiding colloquialisms and idioms, we make our language more inclusive and more interculturally appropriate. <laughs> so yeah. it really brings it all back to like, how do we communicate with people who don't speak our language? That's right. We avoid idioms. <laughs> <laughs> I love the, um, the survey idea. So let's say we put together a survey. Um, are you, are you creating the survey based on the audience? So in other words, are you differentiating your surveys uh, by by classification or by who it's going or is it one survey with all of the questions? Yeah, we're committed to three surveys annually to three different audiences. So we do uh, staff, we do families, and then we also do a survey for all of the trained staff, uh, the in-house staff who do translation and interpretation. That's so great. That's a very key piece because um, I think at some point you do have to one way or another be able to gauge where you stand and where you're at, you know, and how you're able to improve your system once it's established is by asking those that are um, actually using the service to, you know, give you some feedback, you know. So I think that is an incredible um, just piece of the puzzle there, uh, Nicholas, that you guys have going on. And I commend you and your district really, um, you know, and everyone involved, you know, it, it takes, it takes a village, right? So um, the fact that someone said, let's do something and another followed, and then, you know, it just became this movement within the district. You can see that it's, I mean, it might take a while. I don't know. I'm sure it's taking you guys years, right? I would say to be able to establish one system or another, or would you say it happened pretty fast? Uh, it, it was a long time coming. Uh, right. with language inequity and lack of language access was a historic reality. So this was a change that had to happen quickly. Uh, and it's been done over the past three years is what I've, you know, from coming in and not having anything to where we are today, it's, it's taken us, yeah, three years. Yeah, that's still, I mean, even three years is a short period of time, really, when you consider um, you know, you're going up against an entire organization and, you know, um, a lack of, of strategies or systems. If nothing, if nothing was created, even three years uh, seems pretty quick, uh, to be honest. How did, do you feel, um, Nicholas, that the, the systems that were in place assisted your team or the district to be able to navigate through these COVID times? Um, yes. I can say yes, because uh, I'm actually really impressed uh, with how my district handle themselves uh, during COVID. I mean, besides the regular, when are we going to stop going in and out? And, you know, when are we going to stop deciding when to go in person and then go back to remote? I mean, I feel like that's happening to every district, but that's right. because we're all being cautious. Um I'm impressed with the level of commitment that they've made to communications, actually. Um, we are using the upgraded uh, remote simultaneous interpretation feature in Zoom uh, for meetings. Uh, and we're also using it for distance learning. Um, we 
kind of so once we all captured and really understood what the interpreter feature does it didn't take long before we realized that it was perfect for paras or mm. para educators because they could more in essence be in the student's ear and it kind of controls volume and blocks out the teacher for like you know or puts the teacher's volume down to like 20 percent. so we've like we've taken this thing that we created for language or introduced for language access and actually are using it for distance learning and instruction which to me is it's awesome i, I think it's uh, I, I love that we're doing that that's incredible actually that's really really great i yeah. I, I hadn't heard that so that's that is really amazing i like that I think that, you know, just in general, the theme really uh, here is taking action, right? Um, just being able to, yes, identifying that need, but also uh, being able to take action towards that objective. And I feel that your school district, along with you yourself, Nicholas, have done that. And, you know, you're definitely a model of language access in K through 12 schools. And I commend you and your team for that. I think it's absolutely incredible what you're doing out there. And I can only foresee more growth for your school district. And hopefully one day someone shines a bright light over your guys' TNI department out there and use it as a model for language access in K through 12 schools. I want to thank you so very much for your time. Thank you for sharing your story here with us. And I really do hope that someone reaches out to you in hopes of being able to create something similar or begin the process um, that they're able to connect. And having said that, where can our listeners find out more about you and the work that you do? Absolutely. Uh, we have a, a public page on the Holyoke Public Schools website. Uh, it's the translation and interpretation page. Uh, it's available in all the languages represented in our district, and it has my contact info. And that's Nicholas Magnolia for you guys. I'm going to include those links uh, for all the information that Nicholas mentioned in the show notes. So that way you can follow um, and be able to connect with Nicholas if uh, you'd like. Nicholas, thank you so very much. I really appreciate you and your time. You be safe out there and we'll continue to stay in touch. Thank you so much, Maria. You know, the role of interpreters and translators in public schools is more complex than many realize. I aim to create more visibility in the profession, and in particular where there's hardly any, as in the case of the language professional in education. I encourage you to help support the efforts in any way you can, and I know you're already doing so by having listened to this episode, so thank you. Hey, and if you have a question for Nicholas Magnolia or me, don't hesitate to send me a message. Simply visit my website at www.brandtheinterpreter.com and either send me an email or record your question. That's all I have for you today. Tune in next week for another special guest episode on the Brand the Interpreter podcast, where I share your stories about our profession. See you then. Hey, thanks for sticking around till the very end. If you'd like to connect with me, head on over to the website, brandtheinterpreter.com and click on the connect with me tab. You can also stay connected on social media, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube as Brand the Interpreter or Mireya Perez on LinkedIn. Till next time.